Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And uh, this is a somewhat of a long text, and so I'll just invite you to stay seated and to follow along as I read aloud. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he has raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the word of the Lord. So... Um, when I first started in the workplace, one of my first jobs was this uh, check cashing store in North Little Rock and uh, right there on JFK Boulevard. And I've told you stories about that before, but uh, my manager was actually a pastor and he knew that I was um, kind of interested in ministry. At that point, I hadn't really fully surrendered yet in my life, but I was interested in ministry and, and he was a pastor. And so he was always kind of bringing up stuff. But the thing is, is that he was the pastor of a church that would follow more of a prosperity type theology. And of course, I was coming from a more fundamentalist missionary Baptist background. And so needless to say, that went together about like oil and water does. And so, uh, so we would also, we would often have, uh, really interesting conversations and, uh, specifically talking about signs and wonders and stuff like that. And one of the things he said to me one time, he says, Randy, what does the word Christian mean? And I said, well, I, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure it means to be Christ-like. He said, right. Well, how do we become like Christ? What did Christ do? He healed the lame. He gave sight to blind eyes. He did this and that and this and that. So doesn't it make sense that to be Christ-like, then we must do those things too? And I said, show me one blind man you've given sight to and I'll believe you. But the truth is, is that all denominations, no matter where they come from, no matter, no matter what they do, no matter what they teach, all of them agree with one thing, and that is that the goal of the Christian life is to be Christ-like. And by Christ-likeness, what we're really referring to is spiritual maturity, spiritual maturity. And so all of us agree. Paul says that we are to grow together into a mature man. 
He uses that imagery of maturity and physical maturity to talk about the church and how the church is to mature. Everyone agrees with that, but what we don't necessarily agree on, such as what my manager shows us, is that we don't necessarily agree on what that looks like. Doesn't, we don't agree on what it looks like. And so there's lots of ideas out there as to what it means to be spiritually mature. So like, for example, if you're a more of a fundamentalist stripe and you're more of the independent Baptist type stripe, for you, uh, spiritual maturity is kind of uh, following the rules and, and not doing whatever social ill or whatever cultural, big cultural sin is kind of on their radar this week, whether it be going to movie theaters or listening to certain music or Harry Potter or whatever the case, whatever is the whatever is the hot button issue right now. For the prosperity gospel, like, like my manager, to be Christ-like, to be spiritually mature means that you are healthy and you are wealthy, right? To be, uh, to be the social gospel or the social justice warriors, spiritual maturity means that you are uh, fighting whatever cause of whatever social ill is out there right now. Again, whatever the hot button is, right now, whatever that may be. You say, oh, those silly guys, they, don't, they really don't know what they're talking about. Well, unfortunately, a lot of evangelicals don't either. Because for many evangelicals, spiritual maturity looks something like this, and it's kind of hard to nail this one down. But, it, but as far as I can tell, it looks something like this, that you are, a, you are happy, you are nice, you are well-adjusted, a productive citizen who votes right and you show up to church every now and then. Not every Sunday anymore, but every now and then. And as long as you're doing that, you are a spiritually mature Christian. As you can see, there's a lot of confusion out there as to what makes spiritual maturity today. And did you notice that every one of those has a, a kind of sliver of truth to it? Every one of those. I mean, our goal is to avoid sin, right? Yes. Our goal is to try to right the wrongs of our culture, right? Yes. Our goal is to do all of these. All of them have kind of a sliver of truth to them, but, but they're imbalanced. A lot of them are. They're imbalanced in what they, what they stress and more to the point, a lot of times they're imbalanced in what they don't stress. And so this morning, our goal at Calvary is to press toward maturity in every single person who is a member of our church. We want the church to be mature spiritually, but in order to do that, we have to know what spiritual maturity looks like. We have to know what it actually is and how the scriptures talk about it. And to be honest with you, this is a question I started asking a few years ago, especially, especially during COVID. I began to, you know, as things were getting kind of rearranged and, and we were beginning to really nail down what are our priorities here? What is it that we're really supposed to be doing versus uh, things that are really uh, not serving the cause anymore and those kinds of things? The first thing we, I wanted to do was go back and say, what does the scripture say about spiritual maturity? And I began to look at all the passages in, in the New Testament about what it says and, and, and came up with this huge list. You know, there's like 31 and other commandments, right? 
there's all kinds of, of things that talk about, like for example, First uh, Corinthians chapter two, verse fourteen, that that they that those who are able to spiritually discern truth versus the natural man who cannot do that. We talk about milk versus meat, and then we also talk about things like Christian living, prayer, fasting, etc. And it became very obvious very quickly that we can fall into a temptation of creating this huge list of things that basically we have to check off in order to be a spiritually mature Christian, which is very pharisaical, very pharisaical. And I didn't wanna do that. However, what I did notice is that there are three cardinal Christian values that kept coming up again and again and again in the New Testament. And we actually find them here in chapter one, verses two and three. Did you see it as we read through it? Here's what it says. Look at verse two. We give thanks to God always for you all, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. And how are they mentioning them? Remembering before our God and Father, and watch this, your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. And do you see those three cardinal values there? Faith, hope, and love. And those three values are found all throughout the New Testament. We find them again and again and again, most popularly in 1 Corinthians 13. But we also see them in Peter's writings. We also see them in various places in Paul's writing. We see them in all of these different places throughout the scriptures. And it began to occur to me that most of the commands that I'm looking at, this huge list, fall into either one or some combination of those three virtues. And so a simple way to put it then is that our, the, the, what a spiritual maturity looks like is someone who is mature in faith, they are mature in hope, and they are mature in love. And so looking at those, what are we talking about? Faith, talking about what we believe, the content, you might say. It's our confession, if you will. Hope is a little harder to define, but as you look at how the scriptures look at hope, it's, it's how we live, specifically in light of what we believe. And so it's actually living out our faith. It is, it is what we do, it's who we are. And then of course, love is how we relate to others uh, in the church and beyond. So beloved, our goal is as a church to press toward spiritual maturity. First Thessalonians is very unique in Paul's writings because it has by far the longest prayer of thanksgiving that he gives to any church. This church is doing stuff right and there's evidence from Acts that whenever he gets this report and, and he hears what's happening at Thessalonians, it, it revives his ministry. He gets so excited about it. And I don't know about you, but I want to be part of a church that would get Paul excited, right? I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to be like the Corinthian church where he says, oh, I got to deal with these guys again. I don't want to be that church. I want to be, I want to be a church that would get Paul excited. And the question is, what kind of church would that be? What does spiritual maturity look like in the church? And he's gonna work this out throughout chapter one. 
And so we're gonna see here that a mature church is one that pursues these three areas of ministry, or you could say these three areas of development in your Christian life. We are, we are pressing toward these things. And so you can, you can call it different things. You can say conviction, confession, community. I, I like that arrangement. I like the three C's there, like a good Baptist pastor. You know, they all start with the same letter. But really kind of what I came down on, and you know these because we talk about them a lot, but what I came kind of down on was this. How do we want to press toward maturity? If you're gonna be mature in the Christian life as a result of our ministry, what would that look like? And it would be someone who is, knows the faith, lives the faith, and shares the faith. And so this morning, again, pressing into the new year, I just want to remind you of those kind of three legs of ministry, if you will. You can imagine it like a bar stool, if you will. And I don't know if we wanna talk about a bar stool in church, so let's call this a church stool. And just imagine it only has three legs, okay? But what you have here is kind of the, the Christ-likeness. This is spiritual maturity, but the three legs that are holding it up would be confession, conviction, community, or or knowing the faith, living the faith, sharing the faith, or however you want to say it. And so we've chosen to word it this way, know the faith, live the faith, share the faith. And, and that is what we are pursuing in the church life, and that is what we are seeking to develop in you. So let's talk about what it looks like. So looking at pursuing maturity, how do we do that? We pursue maturity, first of all, by knowing the faith. By knowing the faith. Look at verses uh, four and following. He says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. In other words, we know that you are the elect. We know that you are chosen. We know that you have, you are in the Lord. Why do we know that? Because in verse five, because our gospel came to you not only in word. Now, Let's, let's stop right there for a minute. Let's stop right there. It came not only in word. Now, I wanna stress this. He doesn't say that our gospel did not come to you in word at all. He doesn't say that we didn't pass on any words to you. That, that's not the point. I remember years ago, it used to be popular to say something like this. Preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. I know who said it, but that's kind of dumb. I mean, how can you, how can you, and, and I get what he's trying to say there, I, I understand that, but, but how can you truly preach the gospel with no words? How can you do that? There's got to be words involved. And so there were things that they needed to know in order to become Christian, in order to follow Christ. And look what it says uh, for most of us, just a turn of a page in chapter two, verse 13. It says that we thank God constantly for this. For when you received the word which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really was, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And so they came to them in the word. They accepted the word. They received the word. They, they heard it and they learned it. They knew it. But, but notice that Paul says that that's not enough. It's not just enough to hear the word. But then he goes on and says, but it also, when it came to you, it came not in word only, but in power, 
and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. What was it that the Spirit gave their words power to do? It was to fully convince them of the truthfulness of the word. They became fully convinced of Paul's gospel. You know, and I've, I've used this illustration before, so but a lot of you are new, so I feel kind of safe in using it again. But those of you who know the answer, to, uh, don't call it out. But let me ask you a question. By show of hands in here, how many of you believe that Paul Tillich is the most influential Lutheran theologian in the 20th century? How many of you guys believe that? Not a single hand in the room. Why don't you believe that? I mean, it sounds good, doesn't it? But why don't you know that? Somebody said it back there. You don't know who he is. And I would dare to say that most of you probably could care less about Lutheran theology in the 20th century, right? And so, in other words, by definition, guys, you cannot believe something you don't know. By definition, you cannot believe something you don't know. And moving on from that, the better you know something, the more convinced you will be of it. The better, the more deeply you know something, the more you will become stable in its truthfulness. Let's look at a couple passages, Ephesians chapter four, verses 14 and 15. He says in verse 14, he says, so that, and he says, this is the reason why we gave these gifts to the church, apostles, prophets, uh, so on and so forth, pastors, teachers, why? So that we may no longer be children, watch this, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Why do we stress doctrine so much at Calvary? Because we don't want you to be tossed to and fro by every fad that is coming over the airwaves, by every fad of doctrine that is coming over the television lines, over the internet. You can, you can find, you can believe anything you want to today and get on YouTube and find some teacher who teaches it. Find someone who is affirming what you already believe. You can do that. And there's lots of people who do. But beloved, there is a remarkable stability that comes from knowing the faith. We need to know the faith so that you will not be tossed to and fro by every wave and every fad and every wind of doctrine that comes around. Psalm 119, 165 says, great peace have they which love your law. Boy, that sounds weird, doesn't it? Love the law, but why do you love the law? Great peace have those who love your law. Why? Because nothing can make them stumble. Nothing will make them, cause them to stumble in their faith. The, faith, the more you know the faith, the more stable and secure you will be. This makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, the more you know a person, the more confident you are in their character. I've had people tell me things before. Uh, here recently, you know, so-and-so did something or did so-and-so, and because I knew the person they were talking about, I said that there's a misunderstanding here because I know that person. And immediately I knew something was off. I knew there had to be something that was wrong. 
Why? Because I know that person. And the more you know a person, the more confidence you have in their character, right? Doesn't the same thing apply to the Lord? That the more we know the Lord, the more we know his truth, the more confident we're gonna be of his sovereign goodness over us. That whatever happens in life, great peace have those which love your law because nothing will cause them to stumble. Nothing will cause them to step aside. So there's a maturity in knowing your faith. Knowing your faith. But there's a great temptation here. And we gotta be careful. There's a great temptation that is, that is very prevalent among People like me who tend to be more academically minded, people who are uh, seminary students, those kinds of things, even, even those who read their Bibles a lot, there's a big temptation here we gotta avoid, and that is this, thinking that knowing the faith is all there is to maturity. That the more we know automatically, the more mature we come. That is not true. That is not true. There's more to it, beloved. There is a knowledge that puffs up. There is a knowledge that puffs up. And so it's not enough to know the faith, but we must pursue maturity in living our faith. Living our faith. In fact, you know, when you know something and fail to act on it, when you know something and you fail to act on it, that is irresponsibility. And one of the marks of immaturity is being irresponsible. And so it's not enough to know something but you gotta act on it. And so we're not only pursuing knowing the faith, but we're also pursuing living the faith. We pursue maturity by living the faith. Look what he goes on to say in verse six. Let me get back there. He says in verse six that, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in their area. I want you to notice that they not only received, but, but Paul says in verse five, you know what kind of men, you know how we lived our lives among you. And then in verse six, therefore now you became imitators of us. We talked a few weeks ago how we are created to be imitators. We all imitate someone or something. And the reason why we're created that way is because we are designed to imitate the righteousness that we see in God. But then, of course, the fall happened. And now we imitate all of the things other than God. But Paul says that when we came to you, you know what kind of people we were. You know how we conducted our ministry. And you became imitators of us. The word imitator is the word we get mimic from. And so you mimicked us. In other words, you adapted our lifestyle and the behaviors that we showed you when we were there. Their whole lives became a resource for the righteousness of the Thessalonians in their early faith. They lived among them. They showed them uh, how to live as a Christian. This is called discipleship. When you invest your life into another person. Now here specifically, it means they're receiving the word in tribulation. But again, as you go through Thessalonians, you see other things. Like for example, in 1 Thessalonians 4.1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk 
and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more. Chapter three, verse 13. Again, so that we're, we did these things, why? Uh, we prayed these things for you, why? So that he may establish your hearts, watch this, blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means to live with hope. It means to live with conviction. It means to live in light of what we expect. To live in sync with our confession. With our confession. In fact, in verse seven, he says, so that you became examples to others, both who were near and who were far. Now, we need to talk about hope for a minute because the way that hope is used a lot of times today, it's really nothing more than a wish. You know, I hope this comes to pass. I, I hope this or that happens. But understand that biblical hope has more to do with expectation. It, it's an expectation that, that a promise is gonna be kept, that something is going to come. And even more than that, biblical hope is an expectation that prompts action, that, that stirs a certain kind of behavior. Think about this. When you know that you have a guest coming to your house, you know they're gonna arrive at a certain time. You expect them to arrive, right? Well, that prompts action, doesn't it? What do you do? Clean the house. And if you follow my point of view, my, my philosophy is concealment. <laughs> I just want to uh, put things away where you will not see them. Roxanne's philosophy is purity and everything will be clean. When she cleans, beloved, you could inspect our closets and it will be good, all right? But regardless, if you expect someone to come, it, it prompts action. And that's what the scriptures talk about when we talk about biblical hope. It is an expectation that the Lord is gonna keep his promises and it prompts us to certain ways of living. So for example, and, and I'm not gonna read these, uh, but I have them on the board for you to write down. Scripture vitally connects hope to things like prayer. In Psalm 119, 147 and 48, it connects hope to our confidence or our boldness in Colossians chapter three, verse 12. It prompts our patience and suffering in Romans chapter 12, verse 12. And we could go on and on. There's a whole list of these. But let me just kind of leave you with this. In 1 John chapter three, verse three. As we expect the return of the Lord, what does he say? And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself, for he is pure. So biblical hope is living with conviction. It's that our lives match our message. It's that we live in such a way that we, that we live that we truly believe, not just with our words, but with our actions, what we believe. So many Christians today will confess with their mouth wonderful truths about God, but then they will live as practical atheists. 
They live in such a way that God doesn't make a difference in their life. And that's not what we're shooting for here. You cannot have genuine biblical knowledge prompts change. The gospel changes us. It makes us different. What does that look like in daily life? Well, looking back at our text, look at verse nine. Look what the Thessalonians did. He says, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception, but watch this, how you turn to God from idols to serve the true and living God. What, is this, what does this look like every day? This is basically, it's not the same words, but it's the same concept of what we talk about all the time. Putting off the old man, turning from our idols and putting on the new self to serve a true and living God. And so every day is a, is a constant process of putting off the old self, renewing the spirit of our mind, putting on the new self, day in, day out, we are constantly pursuing that. Turning from our idols to serve the true and living God. Paul here is speaking of their initial conversion, but our lives are a continual process of that. Putting off, putting on, turning from our idols, turning to God, taking up our cross, following him, dying to self, dying, living to Christ, being crucified with Christ, and yet living, not I, but Christ in me, putting away all moral filth and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. Don't be hearers only, but be doers of the word. The, this concept is all over scripture. It uses different language, but it's all over scripture. This is sanctification. This is what it looks like. Putting off, putting on. So we press toward maturity and knowing we press toward maturity and living. But now the question is, how does that affect how we relate to others? And so we, we pursue ministry by knowing the faith, living the faith, but we also pursue maturity by sharing the faith. Sharing the faith. Again, in verses eight and following, he says, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith has, and God has gone forth everywhere so that we do not need to say anything. The word sounded forth. I, I love that term because it has the idea of reverberation. You know, I don't know if you've ever gone into the caves at Blanchard Springs or, or maybe you've shouted into an open field or, or I guess it wouldn't work in an open field, but you shouted like somewhere that had walls or something like that or maybe down a hallway or, or maybe you've been in a place like that where the acoustics where you just say something and it just bounces off the walls over and over and over again. And that's the imagery that's here. I don't know if you've seen Lord of the Rings where uh, Gondor uh, calls for help and they light the beacon and then this beacon lights and then this beacon lights and then this beacon lights and then, and then the king of Rohan, uh, Aragorn walks in and says, Gundor calls, and the king of Rohan says, and, and Rohan will answer. I expected cheers there, but anyway. So, <laughs> but, um, but the point is, <laughs> 
I like Lord of the Rings, what can I say? But, um, but the point is, is that this message that Paul gave to us, it then bounces off of this person, 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 on and on and on through 2,000 years of Christian history to where today it is bouncing off of me to you and bouncing off of you to the community at large. It sounds forth, it reverberates throughout the world. It bounces off to those who are close by, but also to everywhere where their faith has gone out. In fact, it's so effective that look what Paul says. Says that we don't need to say anything for they themselves report what kind of reception we had among you. And I just imagine this scene. Paul was so worried about the Thessalonian faith that he sends Timothy to go back to Thessalonica and check on them. And Timothy, as is traveling safety at the time, he's traveling in a caravan and somebody asks him, where are you going? Well, I'm going to Thessalonica. Have you heard what is happening there? These apostles of Christ came in and, and did something. And now the whole city is erupted in, in all of these things that are going on. This whole new faith, this Christianity is going all over the place. And they're telling this to Timothy. They didn't have any need to say anything because the people themselves are reporting, look, this is what's happening there. This is, and I imagine in their case, they're probably saying, you sure you wanna go there? But just imagine to be so effective that, that, even the enemies of Christ are having to admit that something is going on here. Something is happening. And not only, but notice here, for the sake, we're not just talking about sharing the faith, but notice specifically what they're saying. They themselves report what kind of reception we had among you. The way they welcomed Paul's party, the way they welcomed the apostolic party Sharing the faith really has two aspects. Actually, all of these does. We, how we relate them to both one another and how we relate them to the lost. Living the faith has the same way, knowing the faith. But, but sharing the faith is especially potent because there, there's two ways that we do this. We share the faith both, obviously, number one, in evangelism. We share the faith sending forth the word of God to those who need to hear it. Beloved, the most loving thing we can do is tell the truth. The most loving thing we can do is tell the truth. But it also has a Christian life component in that it also includes fellowship. Fellowship and community among one another. Uh, chapter two, verses eight through 12. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. For you have become very dear to us. You wanna know what church fellowship looks like? That's what it is. That we share not only the gospel, but we share our very lives with one another. Loving both those who are inside the church and those who are without the church, the joyful and generous sharing of our lives together. You know, that's what attracts people to the gospel. That's what attracts people to the gospel. I used to, you know, back when I first started ministry, it was so, it was so big that you had to have these attractive come and see ministries. And, and, and I'm not, you know, there's a place for that. I'm not, I'm not saying that that's wrong. 
But the idea is that our programs will attract people into our church. No, beloved, programs don't attract people. People attract people. And you can have the best programs in the world if you've got people running those programs, in those programs, who are manipulative, who are selfish, who are hard to get along with, then that program's not gonna keep anybody. But if you have loving people, people who love one another, people who are committed to one another, covenanted together to live out the faith among one another, then you can have programs, you can not have programs, you can do whatever you want. That attracts people. It is the love of God's people that attracts people to church. And can I say, Calvary, from the day I arrived, you have done well. You have done well in that. You have done so good. And I, just, I just encourage you to keep it up, especially our, especially our new members. Keep it up. This is what church membership looks like. There is no such thing in the scripture of someone who joins a church and then they just disappear. There's no such thing as that. There is no such thing as a church in scripture that has 400 people on the roll and we only know where about 100 of them are. That is completely foreign to scripture. Church membership is about life together. It is about a community that is covenanted together and sharing the faith with one another in fellowship and launching out together in mission. They demonstrate love, especially for one another. And when people see that, they become convinced that the gospel is real. Especially when they see that among people who could not be more different than oil and water. But they see that the gospel brings them together. So God created us to mature, to reflect his image to grow into the image of Christ. His design is that this is accomplished in the context of community. In a community that is pursuing Christ, pursuing maturity, will be knowing, living, and sharing the faith among one another, pursuing hope, pursuing love, and pursuing faith. So beloved, our goal is that every person who belongs to Calvary will be developing these three cardinal virtues in their life. That you will be growing in your faith, you'll be growing in your hope, you'll be growing in love toward one another. And so, what can you do? How can you be a part of this? How can you become part? couple of very simple suggestions, things that you already know, but, but just to be reminded, just to emphasize, number one, become a part of the church. Become a member. Become a member of the church. Acts chapter two, verse 41. Those who received the gospel that day were baptized. Some 3,000 people were added to the church. Become a member. Beloved, we practice, we believe in church membership here. And the reason why is because when you become a member, we are committed to you. And we ask you to be committed to us. We're all in this together. So we want you to become a member. Number two, join a small group. Join a small group. You know, there's no such thing as a large group. 
Did you know that? There is no such thing as a large group. You know what a large group is? It's nothing but a network of small groups. That's how it works. There is no such thing as a big church. There is a network of small groups within that church. That's, there's no such thing. And so pursue faith, hope, and love in the way that God created us to operate together. We will naturally come together in smaller groups. We naturally do that. Look at every potluck. And what happens? The same people sit together every time, right? We, we naturally gravitate towards small groups. So let's use that and become part of a small group, whether it's your Sunday school class or whether it's one of our afternoon, uh, one of our Sunday evening small groups. But become a part of one and find that accountability, find that purpose, find that, that group of connection in the church. You cannot connect with every single person in this church. That's not gonna happen. You, you cannot do that. There's not enough time in the world to do that. But you can connect with five to 12 people in the church. That you can do, and you can do that really well. So find a small group and become part of it. And something else here, meet to pray with others. Meet to pray with others. Pray for, pray for your maturity. First Timothy chapter two, eight talks about men coming together and praying, women doing the same. Talks about uh, uh, elderly teaching the young, old women teaching young women, old men teaching young men. Meet to pray together and pray for one another. And there's, there's a ton of other things that I could give, but... Essentially, we're saying become a part of the church. Don't, don't be a face in the crowd. I was uh, talking with our Sunday school class this morning. We were talking about Leviticus and comparing the community that we find in Leviticus to the community in the church. And one of the things we said was, you know, I, I, and I get the temptation, especially with a condition that a lot of churches are in today. I get the temptation to want to go to a church and just be a face in a crowd. I get that. I understand it but you need to understand that that is not the biblical model of church membership. It's not. Church membership is a community of people who covenant their lives together in order to pursue Christ in their own lives and in the life of the community. And there's a lot more we could say about that. But beloved, we want you to be part of a community like that. That's our goal. And the first thing in order to be a part of that community is that you must know Christ as your savior. You must receive the gospel. You must confess your faith in the gospel by mouth, by baptism, and you can become a member of this community. What is the gospel? It's that Christ came, he lived a perfect life. He was both God and man. And he earned the very righteousness that we need. And then he died on the cross to face his own wrath, the wrath that we deserve. Christ himself, God incarnate, died for our sins so that we can be forgiven. And then he raised on the third day because his sacrifice was enough, it was sufficient. It was everything we need. And over 500 witnesses saw him at once. And we have the inspired writings of those who saw him, the apostles. 
We know Christ has ascended to heaven, sitting at the right hand of God. And he's offering himself to you as a deliverance from his wrath, as a savior. And your response is repent of your sins and trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Will you do that today? We want you to be a part. We want you to be a part of a community that is pursuing Christ-likeness. Our Father, we thank you for these truths. We thank you for everything that you have done in our lives, Lord. But most especially, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for Jesus Christ, who gave his life for us. Lord, I pray this morning that if there's one here who does not know Christ as their Savior, I pray that today would be the day that, they, that you draw them to yourself, that they come to know you. And Lord, I pray as a church that we would pursue Christ-likeness, that we would dedicate ourselves, that we would spend and be spent so that your people will know the faith, they will live the faith, and they will share it. They will develop in hope and faith and love. And they will be like you, Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. You are a prophet, you are a priest, you are a king. So Lord, we want to be like you. Let's stand together. If you have a need this morning, maybe you need to join the church. Maybe you need to confess your faith in baptism. Maybe you need to, whatever, whatever your need is, we invite you to come. If you just wanna Come up and pray, you can certainly do so. If you want someone to pray with you, you can certainly go to them or you can come to me and we'll pray for you. Let's sing together the song, Take My Life and Let It Be.